been divided into two services, but we are back as one now, and uh, that just means that I get to just go all out for one sermon. So I'm excited about that. Um, it took some adjusting to get to doing twice, but I'm excited just to, to be there once and just to give it my all. Uh, if you're here as a visitor, uh, thank you again for joining us. Uh, it is it is our practice to preach the Bible. Um, we showcase the written word read and preached here. And so uh, right now you've caught us uh, kind of at the tail end of a, a series that we're working through different psalms in the Old Testament. And so uh, if you're a visitor, we hope you'll be able to just really jump right in with us. But we've been looking at these section of psalms in uh, numbered in our English Bibles, at least 120 to 134. Today we're in uh, Psalm 131. So if you do have a Bible, I'd love for you to open that up, turn that on. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the words projected for you, uh, but we do love to give away Bibles for free, so if you'd like to take one of those on your way out, we would love to make that a gift to you today. Um, yeah, so we're in Psalm 131 today. Uh, before we look at the text, um, most of you know, uh, we just welcomed a, a new addition into our family, uh, young Isabel. She's now one month old today. Happy birthday, Isabel. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got two other boys. So we've got, now we're a family of five, six, if you count the dog, which the, the boys like to do that. But we, uh, you know, there's just, there's been this transition, uh, you know, from, from man-to-man defense. Now we're running a zone defense. We're outnumbered. And I was, I've been talking to parents, you know, everybody's asking how we're doing and all that, and, and a number of you have more than three children. Um, we can't really think at that level at this point, um, but a number of you have commented how the adjustment from two to three was the biggest adjust, adjustment, more than, you know, one to two or four to five or wherever you're at. Um, but, uh, but it was this, it's kind of been this new revelation to me, like, Okay, this is the new normal for us, right? Family as a life, family of five is our new life, and it, it and I and I'm just beginning to resonate that this is going to have some implications for how we live. Like things are different. Like we've got different operating things that we need. The boys have like a whole litany of things that they need to get done now because, quite honestly, we just need their help. And and it really dawned on me this week as I'm really just kind of dictating and delegating all of our things around the house, like. This new revelation of being a family of five has implications for our life and how it's going to be run. As we're looking at Psalm 131 this morning, uh, if, you'll, if you'll scroll your eyes back up, if you notice in last week's Psalm 130, in verse 7, um, it says, O his, Israel, hope in the Lord. And then if you'll notice back down at the end of 131, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Uh, that's one of the way the Bible kind of sometimes connects things, is using phraseology like that. And so a lot of commentators were talking about how 130 and 131 really go together. And here's my point in talking about our family and the revelation. In, in Psalm 130, if you were with us last week, the, the concept was hope in the Lord. Why? Because he's like this. It tells us that he has steadfast love and he's full of redemption. And so it's kind of like this new revelation. Like if God is like that, well, then how are we going to live now? And so Psalm 130 was kind of like, this is what God is like. And Psalm 131 is, how are we going to live now? And so let's look at Psalm 131, um, which I have so egregiously titled, Sweet Child of Mine. Um, I've been using modern, modern or not so modern. Apparently, I'm into like American 80s rock because uh, several of my titles have been from that. 
Um, but it's a, it's a short psalm, and I love what Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, commented. He said, this is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. So let's, let's read Psalm 131 as we look at the word of the Lord this morning. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our God, will stand forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we long to be like this psalm tells us, children weaned. Help us to learn what that means today. Lord, help us to look at these words not just as ancient type in a book, but that they would be healing words of of hope for us, that they would draw us closer to you and to your son, the Lord Jesus, by your spirit. Lord, would you work in us today? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, upon uh, moving back to Albuquerque uh, two years ago now, a little over two years ago, uh, we, we purchased a home. You know, we decided to be big boys and girls and go ahead and do a home purchase. We planned on being in Albuquerque for many, many years. And uh, with home ownership, as some of you may know, comes lots of responsibilities. Uh, kind of one of the, the thorns in my flesh of responsibility of home ownership has been the backyard. Uh, and all that that entails. Now, have, being a father of a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a puppy, you know, like, the hope is really low. Like, I mean, I'm not looking to be on, you know, the, the top, you know, landscaping magazine cover or anything along those lines. I'm really just trying to fill holes so they don't break ankles and clip trees so that they don't get hang-lined and those types of things. And um, a few months back, um, I kind of looked out the backyard, and, and I just kind of was like, that's getting out of hand. Like, you know, like just looking at our sliding glass, I was like, I need to do something about that. And so we began kind of the process of getting this thing in shape a little bit, try to get the grass alive. And one of the things that I, I learned uh, through the process and, and the help of my father-in-law and, and a family friend who did some landscaping stuff for us was the importance of pruning trees. Uh, we had several dilapidated and dying trees in our backyard, like, like hurting. Like, is that still a tree? I'm not entirely sure, but it's there. And, you know, what he came in, to, I mean, one of them he just took out. He's like, we got it. This has got to go. This is not coming back to life. No pruning will do this thing any good, right? And so he took one of the trees out, and, um, but he began to show me a little bit about you know, which branches to take off, which pruni- what, what pruning does and how it really, it can, cutting off branches can really produce life in, in, in the tree, in the plant. And so he did that to several of our trees and, you know, they're still alive and doing well. And, you know, Jesus, he used that pruning metaphor in his ministry. Some of you are familiar with Jesus's words in John chapter 15, where he said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And even the branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so Jesus uses this agricultural metaphor of pruning trees in order to produce more fruit. And really, Psalm 131, in my understanding of it, is a pruning song. It's a, it's a pruning song of maintenance for the believer. Um, it's, it, it's, it's pruning our hearts in a way that is oftentimes very uncomfortable. This song was very uncomfortable for me. And, and I hope it's that for you on some levels. But it also shows us the importance of not only God's pruning in our lives but also how he heals and produces fruit through that. Uh, Here's the big idea that I want to communicate this morning. I want us to see that pruning pride in our hearts produces lasting contentment in our lives. So pruning pride in our hearts produces lasting contentment in our lives. Let's look at two things this morning. It's a short psalm. Uh, We're really going to focus on verses 1 and 2. Verse 3 is kind of the conclusion of the hoping portion. So in verse 1, we're going to look at what the hungry heart. We're going to look at the hungry heart in verse 1. And then in verse 2, we are going to look at the weaned heart. So let's consider what the hungry heart looks like in verse 1. Uh, The ascription is given to David. Uh, I've mentioned this. Uh, Some of them have authors ascribed to them. Others don't. This one is given to David. Uh, If you're not familiar all that much with the Bible, this is King David. Uh, You know, Goliath and David. Uh, You know, the shepherd boy turned warrior David. Uh, This is David, the ancient Near Eastern king who was risen up up as, as the ancient or as Israelite king. This is uh, David of Bathsheba, if you're familiar with that one. You don't hear that one in children's school all the time. But um, for David, a a king, the temptation of self-exaltation and pride is really high. Like the temptation factor for him would have been really high. And and I don't want us to kind of get into this, you know, this mentality like I'm not not an ancient Near Eastern king. I don't have all that many temptations to be self-exalting. I'm pretty ordinary. Um, but I, I, think, I think sometimes we might think about characters in the Bible and think they're just so distant from my life and so different that, that there's really no resonating with them. Um, see, pride is the greatest enemy for all of humanity. Pride is the great enemy that we are battling against. And so whether you're a believer in this time and context in in Israel, or whether you're a believer in in North Korea, like a closed country where Christianity is not public, or whether you're a believer in America, there are always barriers to living out these gospel realities, right? There's always barriers regardless of your culture. And so Time and culture and history, it it doesn't matter. Like, it's always hard to bear out these kind of cultural realities. And it's particularly hard when an ancient temptation like pride becomes a way of living in the culture in which you reside. And that is the case we're in. That the 
American dream that we are so often pitched and sold was built on the back of ambition and self-exaltation and pride at the root. And so, you know, there, there is this distinction between aspiring for greatness, like wanting to do life well and exceed in our jobs and our families and, and all of those things. But aspiring for greatness is good, but demanding on greatness is ambition. It's ambition to an unhealthy level. I mean, it's the ambition of the garden, right? You remember the Garden of Eden? It's the ambition of always wanting more all the time and never having enough. You remember Adam and Eve, the first parents? God had laid out for them this lush garden full of delightful fruit. He had, he had come down to commune with them in person. They had lasting fellowship with each other and with God. All was well, and he gave them one command to follow. You shall not eat of the fruit of this tree. This one. Stay away from this one. Everything else was not enough. It, was, it just wasn't enough for them. And so you know the outcome of that story, as well as I do, is that ambition gripped their heart and pride to be elevated to a new level and equality with God gripped them. And they were thrown into the abyss of fallenness and what it looks like to become and attempt to become like God. I love what commentator John Calvin says. He says that those who yield themselves up to the influence of ambition will soon lose themselves in a labyrinth of perplexity. It's this spiraling perplexity of what ambition does and pride does when it grips our hearts. Um, Psalm 131, verse 1 shows us what the prideful heart does. Now, David says these are the things that his heart is not doing. You'll see it in the negative, but I think we ought to consider what it looks like when our hearts do these things. So if you look at the beginning of verse 1, it says that my heart is not lifted up. Uh, the way that kind of phraseology works in the Hebrew, it's, it's, a, it's really a reference to, to pride puffing up against God. And so, you know, one of the great examples in the Bible is in the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, where humanity wanted to build a tower to get to the heavens. And so they used the advancement of technology and the bricks that they were able to build in order to become elevated with God. They were using technology to replace God, essentially saying, we'll take this on our own, right? Like taking things on their own control on their own strength, on their own ability, on their own insightfulness. Really, it's an attempt to be God. Um, if, uh, if you've been around Christianity or theology, you have heard God referred to in his character in terms of omnis. So there's the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, and the omnipotence of God. This is kind of fancy theological jargon, but those are, it's a threefold way of looking at how God works. He is, omni means all. So he's all-knowing, he's all-present, he's always, everywhere, all the time, and he's all-powerful. See, we try to be omni. <laughs> we try to be omnipresent everywhere, all the time. 
like the super levels of connectivity that we're experiencing in technology. So we're incessantly checking our emails, incessantly checking our messages and our texts and our phone calls. It's an attempt to be everywhere all the time, which really means we're nowhere any of the time. And it's an attempt to be God. We also try to be all-knowing. We really are a people who are incapable of being wrong. Um, you know the scenario, all right? Like you're at dinner with friends and like some pop culture trivia question comes up and you guys just can't, you can't put your, your finger on the name of that band or whatever it is and who, someone's got to be the first one to get the phone out and Google it, right? Like we can't not know something. We have just been inundated with this this just wide, massive access to information that we want to know all things all the time. Like there will never be a scenario, at least I haven't experienced it, where you can leave that dinner not knowing the answer. You've got to know it. It will kill you. It's an attempt to be all-knowing. We, we try to be all-powerful. We try to manipulate people and scenarios and situations in order to work them together for our good and our glory. See, these are, these are what it, that's what it looks like to be lifted up, to have puffed up pride against God. But, but he goes on and he says, but my eyes, they're not raised too high. This is a reference of pride against people. And so eyes that are lifted up as in elevated over others. You know, it's, it's the person who demands on getting ahead at all costs, even if it includes burning relationships, uh, even if it includes, uh, you know, just loss of people. At all costs, it's for you. People really are a means to your end. Um, this, is, this is the... This is the self-intoxicated narcissist. You know, this is, this is the person who, um, who loves to show everybody that they're right all the time. Uh, this, is, this is the theologically astute Bible scholar in your small group. Like, you ever been with that one, right? Like, you, you just, it just has to show you and lord over you his his theological, his or her theological astuteness. Uh, this is, you know, this is the family member um, who's, who's at Thanksgiving just surveying the table and everybody else's problems. And all of a sudden, you know, they've become both a financial advisor and a romantic relationship expert over the course of a meal because they know it all. Um, you know, this is the person whom everything revolves around. Like every decision, every conversation, every activity. This is the person who is always clamoring for attention and fame and recognition. This is us. Charles Spurgeon says this, commenting on this passage in one of his sermons. He says, loftiness of looks and meanness of hearts run with him like a couple of hounds on a leash. Loftiness of looks and meanness of heart. That's what it looks like to have your eyes raised too high, 
to think too much of yourself. But the third thing that verse 1 shows us that pride gets in the way of is occupying myself with things too great. Now, the word there, too great and too marvelous, uh, is, is really a word that was used to describe the activity of God and his redeeming acts. And so, for instance, uh, the plagues in Egypt when God's people were delivered, great, great and marvelous things. So like the Red Sea when God's people are in the wilderness and he parts the sea, great and marvelous things. And so this really is an assault of our pride of productivity, right? This is us elevating our activity to the level of God's activity. Um, this, is, this is taking credit when credit is, is not ours to take. This is having the ever-growing lofty view of yourself and your worth and your involvement in the world and an ever-diminishing view of God's. That's what it means to have a, to have a heart that is occupied with things too great and too marvelous. So what does the hungry heart do? Well, the hungry heart takes ambition for greatness. It removes God from the picture. It replaces it with self, and it ends up looking like ugly arrogance and deep-seated pride. That's the hungry heart. It is not a pretty picture, and when we are honest, it's all of us on some level. Somewhere in there, you were found out. <laughs> and, and I am all in there. So let's look at what the psalm wants us to be like in verse 2. Let's look at the, the weaned heart. So the psalm tells us in very stark terms what we ought to strive to be like. Verse 2, I have a calmed and quieted soul like a weaned child with its mother. Now, full disclaimer right here, little asterisk, pause. Um, Heather said this was a bad idea. Um, my wife, usually, she always knows what's right. Um, but against her better judgment, I mean, the text tells us what we're to be like, and it is so relevant to our lives right now, I just have to share it. Um, so, I'm sorry, Heather. I love you. Um, so our young baby, Isabel, is nursing right now. Um, won't go into details there, but uh, it, is, uh, it is a whole new world for, for our family. Um, but really, Isabel, as one month old, struggles to be around Heather and to be content. I mean, Heather is her source of life right now, literally speaking. And there is this ever-growing discontentment because when mom's around, that means food is around. And so Heather, in moments where she gets to breathe for a second, will give me Isabel, and she'll say, go do something with her. And if I come back near her, she says, leave the room or she'll smell me. Um, and so, so there's, this, there's this just stark picture of what a nursing child is like. They have this neurotic dependency on the mother, right? And it's like that until they're weaned. And, and I'll never understand the full, you know, consumption that that takes of Heather. It's very consuming. Um, but, but 
Isabel is neurotically dependent on Heather for the blessing of milk right now. The psalm is telling us that we ought to be like weaned children, children who are not neurotically dependent like that, but are simply content in the presence of mom, God in the analogy. And so it gives us this stark picture of somebody who's neurotically dependent on God and the blessings that come from him, as opposed to the, to the person who is quietly and peacefully content in just being with God. That's what the psalm is after. And so the process of weaning is not a quiet one from what I've heard. The struggle of finding comfort in a new source is very real. I love how one commentator says that just as the childly child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a satisfying only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake so the worshipper after a struggle has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires god for himself and not as a means of fulfillment of his own wishes his life's center of gravity has shifted He now rests no longer in himself, but in God. This psalm wants us to shift our center of gravity from seeing God as a means to fulfilling our end to seeing God as the end, to being in God's presence as the end. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself, and I want you to ask yourself today is, How can you know if you're weaned or not? How do we know if we're nursing for the blessing or if we're weaned for the very presence of God? And I've come up with some very convicting diagnostic questions that I think you ought to consider for yourself. Here's a few of them. One of the questions I think if you want to know if you're still a nursing or a weaning child of the living God is to ask yourself, how do you respond to loss? How do you do when things are not going well? When your car breaks down, God hates me. God hates me, why now? (laughs) You know, when, when job cuts are headed your direction, what did I do to make God mad? You know, how do you respond to loss? Is it crisis? Or, or maybe the better question is, what is it that you need to be content? You know, if only God would give me this, then I could be happy. What is the fill in the blank for you? You know, if only God would give me a spouse. If only God would give me children. If only God would give me a promotion. What, what is it? Because whatever that is, kids, careers, cars, romance, that is the thing you want from God most, not just God. Or another diagnostic question would be, what does rejection from others do to you? <laughs> you know, when, you're, when your Facebook post that you think is so great is just, you know, the performance is underwhelming. Like, the likes are not there, nobody shared it, 
And like, it's rejection, right? Like, everybody needs to read this article and nobody else is sharing it. What does that do to you? Like, internally. Because I, I know we're all back there waiting for notifications. Like, you want affirmation and it's not there. What does that do to you? Or maybe you're at work and you've got this, just this keen insight to this project and you, you, know, you get to the, to the meeting and you're just, just so ready to share this revelatory information that you have that's going to change the landscape of your entire company and it's, it's just scoffed at. It's kind of like a passing thought, like that was a cute idea. What does that do to you internally and emotionally? Because I'm, I'm afraid that for some of us is, is it crushes us and it paralyzes us. Or maybe a question that you need to ask yourself is, is what happens when your role in life seems rather insignificant and unnoticed? You know, you're just not getting the recognition that you so justly deserve at work, at home, in the neighborhood, in your backyard. Maybe you deserve to be on the cover of a magazine and nobody has taken notice. You know, what does that do to you when your life feels like it has no significance and very little impact? What I think it might do to you is it sends you into this spinning cycle of doing more and trying harder to get noticed. It wants acceptance and acknowledgement so much that you will spin and grind as hard as you can, as long as you can, until someone finally notices. Do you have an incessant need to be seen and to be known, to be loved and to be accepted? You see... To be weaned from the craving for significance and acceptance like that is really to embrace the plain and ordinary humility that Jesus Christ has shown to us in the gospel. All of the acknowledgement and acceptance and embrace that you have always been looking for in all of those areas of your life are found in one person, one person, Jesus. Um, the, the painful pruding and rooting out of pride in our hearts is met with the humility in the gospel. Um, the gospel is, is good news that peace and contentment and rest for wearied people like you and like me is not only possible, but is secured for us. Um, if, ever there was, if, if, if ever there was a man who deserved to lift his eyes up upon marvelous and great things and to be highly exalted, seen, acknowledged, praised, rejoiced in, everything done for him, it was Jesus. But listen to the way Philippians chapter 2 talks about him. It says that, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in, man, in, man, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
See, on that Roman cross, the, the death of shame and cruelty that was poured out on someone who did not deserve it yet willingly embraced it was the death that should have come to narcissistic, self-centered, arrogant, pride-filled people like me and like you. Yet he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he took the punishment for us. He stood in our place and bore everything that should have come against us. Philippians 2 goes on to say, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no other name. There is no other job. There's no other task. There's nothing else that will ever satisfy you like that one. The warm embrace, the acknowledgement and the acceptance, the value and the worth you've always been looking for is discovered in that one. And he smiles to everyone, at everyone who's looking to him in faith to give them what they want most. I've quoted theologians John Calvin and, uh, Mark, and Charles Spurgeon today, so let's close with a, a, a quote from the great theologian Axel Rose this morning. <laughs> In Sweet Child of Mine, Axel Rose says this, She's got a smile that it seems to me reminds me of childhood memories where everything was as fresh as the bright blue sky. Now and then when I see her face, she takes me away to that special place. And if I'd stare too long, I'd probably break down and cry. Do you want to stop wanting all the time? Do you want to know the love of a God who smiles at you when he sees your face and that if he probably stared too long, he would probably break down and cry? Do you want to feel the peace and contentment of a child who no longer just needs the blessings of the mother but is simply content in the presence of the mother? If you want that, Come to Jesus. Jesus is the source of satisfaction you have always wanted. Look no further than this one. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are busy and exhausted, they're drained and they're tired. We're always working and thinking. Lord, we need rest. So I pray today that you would help us to become weaned children, simply content to be in your presence. Lord, help us to see the work of Jesus on our behalf that was satisfying to you so that you look down from the heavens above 
and you smile on every person who's embracing your son this morning. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who does not know the warm embrace that's offered in your son, Lord, would you draw them? Would you by your spirit help them to see the free grace that is offered to them in the gospel today? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.